All right. Well, good afternoon. You're listening to the AOHP Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast. And today we got a great episode. Today we have Dr. Melissa Gresham, who's going to be talking to us today about aviation safety and how that relates to workplace safety and high reliability safety. So Dr. Gresham is a veteran safety professional, but also a veteran combat helicopter pilot with the Army. So we're going to go ahead and get right into it. So Melissa, we're glad to have you here, uh, if you would. So I don't speak for you. If you can give us kind of a quick bit about yourself, uh, your career, you know, where you've been, where you're going, all that good stuff, that'd be cool. Thanks, Corey, and thanks for having me. I, I'm honored to be here and, and speaking to the group today. Um, so let me just start with a quick introduction. Um, Corey said my name is Melissa Gresham. Um, just some personal information about me. I, I live in Dallas, Texas. Um, I am married. I have a husband who's a uh, police detective here in a local police department, and I actually um, met him in the military. I have two kids. I have a 16-year-old, um, just turned 16, just got a driver's license. So we can talk about that in another co- podcast about the safety of a 16-year-old driving. And I have a seven-year-old um, that we had uh, uh, the oldest while we were in the military. Um, I actually grew up in Ohio and met my husband while I was in the military. Um, so I'll start with with my career and how I got into safety because um, I don't think anybody sits in high school and has this dream, I wanna be a safety professional when I grow up. It's just not cool <laughs> you know, when you're sitting in high school and, and thinking about what you wanna do with your life. Um, you, you sort of evolve into it as you learn things in your profession. Um, so in the military, I started out um, in military intelligence. I was called what was called a SIGINT analyst. That's a signals intelligence analyst. Um, I spent some time training at Goodfellow Air Force Base in Texas um, and ended up in Seoul, Korea, which is actually where I met my husband and got married in Seoul, Korea at the U.S. Embassy. Um, at that time, I think what caused me to transition into aviation was the work of a SIGINT analyst is to analyze what's happening on the battlefield. Like you're, you're sitting in this this windowless room and, and analyzing all this data. And I really wanted to be the one out there collecting the data, which would be technically what's called human, which is human intelligence. Um, but an, an alternative to that was to go and become a pilot um, and, and fly this aircraft that I chose, which was called the Kiowa and its mission is reconnaissance and attack. So that's kind of, what evolved my transition into getting into aviation in the first place and, and picking the airframe of the Kiowa. So I went to flight school down at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Um, that was about 18 months um, to learn how to fly the aircraft. Of course, safety is a part of that. Um, it, it's integrated into every single thing within aviation from the beginning, um, starting in flight school. Um, once you graduate flight school, you get to go to a unit, you're assigned to a unit, and I picked uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, Fort Campbell, Kentucky has a really high operational tempo of deployments. So as Corey stated, I, I went to Iraq to support Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2005, and then I was um, back in Afghanistan twice. I went to Afghanistan in 2008, and then again in 2010. Um, supporting Operation Enduring Freedom. So I got some really great experiences. I, I loved seeing um, the culture and just the different way of life and understanding really how blessed we are in America to, to have what we have here. Um, 
but the safety aspect, I, I got into safety in my first deployment, you know, in Iraq. That's when I started training to become a pilot in command. Um, and pilots, we can't fly all the time, right? We have to have some additional duty and you pick um, what you want to do. So I picked safety. Safety was as an, an additional duty that I had at the time. Um, and then after Iraq, I got tra officially trained. You go to a six week long safety school. So I went and got trained on how to become a safety officer, how to manage a safety program and how to integrate it into the into the company. So I, that's how I got into safety and how the military trained me into it. Um, once my military obligation was complete, um, I did go into the civilian world. I worked for a company called Sodexo for a while. That's where I met Corey and we've known each other, I think, 10 years now. And um, then I went to another a healthcare company after that, which is where I'm at now. And then in my spare time, when there is any, I do consulting work. Um, so I've consulted with different cities across the United States on how they implement a safety program within within their organization, or even a private a private sector company as well, um, and managing their safety program and how to enhance their safety culture. Um, I have a couple of certifications and education that's helped me along the way. So after the military, I took full advantage of the, the school program, so the veterans assistance and, and educational benefits um, that the military had to offer. I went and got a master's degree in safety, security, and emergency management from Eastern Kentucky University, and then I, I felt like I just needed more, so I went after that PhD. You know, I had the, the funding to do it, so it took me about eight years. Um, and depending on who I talk to, I vary the PhD because it's such a long title. I, I, and I think anyone that has a PhD, you ask them, it becomes this giant answer on what is your PhD in. And it's from a college of social and behavioral sciences. So that's how it fits into safety is uh, safety is often behavioral. Um, so when I say social and behavioral sciences, it's looking at human behavior and how to maybe modify human behavior with public policy. So that's how, what my PhD is in. And then, of course, in the safety industry, you have certifications that the highest that everybody, I think, wants to achieve is a certified safety professional. So I went after that CSP. I've had it about five years, currently going through the recertification process for that. And then along the way, I did get a, a certified safety playground inspector, and that was um, to help me with the city contracts that I do um, inspecting playgrounds. Um, so that's just a brief history about me, Corey. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's um, always always impressive how you know you've been able to complete continue to progress. You know, from from join the join the military and then going through intelligence, then through aviation, then as a pilot command safety officer, and then through your PhD, CSP. You know, up to where you're at now. So that's that's very cool. So as you've done all that, you know, like you said, within within aviation, of course, you're flying a a helicopter, which you know the the old the old adage. You know at, at least what we talk about in the in the Air Force and I know the Army aviators I've spoken to as well. They always say that the helicopter doesn't fly so much as it, it beats the air into submission. You know, so <laughs> course, there's going to be some safety factors there to make sure that that thing stays stays in the air. Uh, so if you could just kind of give us a breakdown, you know, for those that know safety management but aren't, aren't familiar with 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 the um, with the air mission, what are some of the safety fundamentals that, that y'all look for in the aviation world? 
Yeah, and and Core, you kind of hit it. It, it. The helicopter has so many moving parts, you know. So the safety program is almost exactly like that. It has all these moving parts that have to work simultaneously to work. Um, first, I'm going to talk about the culture of of aviation safety. Um, I, I find that it is very different in aviation safety versus the civilian world that that I'm in now. Um, and if you look at um, different definitions of a safety culture, um, you've got the bottom, which is reactive. It's very reactive where you, an accident happens and boom, everybody runs around. They try to investigate it and figure out what happens. And that, that is not the case in aviation safety. Um, aviation safety culture is at the far other end of the spectrum, which is a predictive culture. They predict what could possibly happen and then they fix it before it does happen. So that's the that's what I strive for in any industry that I'm in in the civilian world or any um, consulting um, project that I do. I strive to bring that organization toward a predictive culture. I do find that most organizations aside from maybe oil and gas and some healthcare organizations are borderline reactive. They're, they're waiting on something to go wrong. And then when it happens, they figure out what went wrong and, and preventing it from happening again, which is a good mindset. We definitely want to prevent things from happening again, but, but at the same time, we've got to predict what's going to happen. So I define aviation safety as very predictive um, and, and analyzing human behavior, which is kind of where that PhD comes in handy and figuring out what could go wrong. But regarding the fundamentals of what an aviation safety program looks like, it's very complex. You know, you look at, um, at OSHA and, and most of the civilian organizations that I've worked for sort of follow those four main components of an OSHA safety program, which would be employee commitment, or I'm sorry, management commitment and employee involvement. You've got training and education, worksite analysis, and hazard identification. Those are the four areas that OSHA would define as, as, a, as a safety program. But in aviation, it, it does in, incorporate all those, but it goes much more defined. You know, it, it starts with you have internal reporting systems, you know, and, and what do your dashboards look like? How do we report safety statistics? Who does it go to? What do we do with that data? So you have a very defined internal reporting system. You have a, a distribution system, right? So when something happens, how do we get that word out? Let's say, you know, a manufacturer comes out and says, this part on this airframe has been determined defective. It's kind of like a recall on your car. I think many of us have received those over the years, but it's the same thing in aviation. If, if it was determined over here in Nebraska that this part failed in this airframe, we quickly have to get that information out to the entire network in the United States. So we have this really complex information distribution system that, that, gets that in the form of a notum, which is a notice to airmen or some other alert that gets that out very quickly that this part could be defective and we need to inspect it on all aircraft that, that are using that part. We have aviation safety committees. Um, these are very similar to what you would find in the civilian sector where you have a committee and um, employees are generally leading that committee because we want employee driven safety committees. But I find in aviation, there are subcommittees to the committee. The committees are much more advanced. Um, you don't just have a, a safety committee. You might have an executive safety committee, and then you have subcommittees under that 
that deal with your internal audits, your training and education, your accident investigation, you know, whatever component you need under that, there's subcommittees to the committee. So very advanced safety committees, you'll, you'll find that in aviation. We have inspection programs, uh, very detailed inspection programs from hangar safety to aircraft safety to crew resource management, which is how much sleep are the pilots getting? You know, what is the readiness level of the pilots and the crews and, and managing that, that aspect of the human factor. Um, so different inspection programs are, are, are integrated into a, an aviation safety program. Of course, you have the, the training and education piece. Um, it's just not negotiable in aviation. You know, you might find in this, well, we missed the safety training or sometimes you safety training is just here, sign on this form. You, okay. Now you're trained and it's not really completed where you have a traditional safety stand on day. I, I have very rarely found an organization completely shut down operations for a day or even a half day to do a safety stand down. I, I don't see that very often in the civilian sector because you just can't shut down an operation. But in aviation, I have seen in a complete day shut down for safety stand down. So you have that training and education piece and you have dedicated time to conduct it so that you have a presenter, you can bring in guest speakers and you have that whole time block dedicated to training and educating the team on safety specifically. We have an advanced safety awards program in aviation. You know, you the pilots are rewarded based on safe flying hours. You know, you hit 100 hours, you get the safety award. You hit 500, so there's different milestones that you go with when it comes to how many hours that you fly accident-free, and that includes night night vision and night nighttime flying as well. And then you have awards that go to the the maintenance staff and the crew chiefs that that are. Uh, performing maintenance on the aircraft as well. So really advanced awards program. And oftentimes in aviation, I find that there's an actual budget dedicated to the awards program. That's another fundamental that I don't see as often in the civilian world. Um, generally the budget for safety, especially an awards program is just maybe a, a gift card here and there, or let's do a pizza party for them. Um, but I don't see an actual dedicated budget toward a safety incentive program, and I think that's a huge gap. Um, we also have very detailed investigations. So when an accident or a mishap, even a near miss, you know, I'll talk about near misses for a second because in, in aviation, a near miss is huge. That could have very easily been an accident. And, and, and even in the swimming world, a near miss, oh, someone almost tripped over this. But if you almost trip over something, you could have easily just tripped over it. So a near miss is pretty much the same thing as an accident in the aviation world. And, I, and I'm finding in a lot of civilian organizations, it's it's a near miss might be an afterthought or they're not reported. Um, the, the culture in the, in the aviation world, as I said, was predictive. We want to predict what's going to happen. So a near miss is predictive, where in the civilian world, you wouldn't report a near miss because there's sometimes a culture of fear. So if I report this, am I going to get in trouble? And a culture of fear has no business in a safety program whatsoever. So I, I find that it, the investigation process, not only on accidents, but on near misses is very detailed. We follow um, a very complex, what's, we call it HVACs. I call it HVACs. That actually stands for Human, Human Factors Analysis Classification System, but a short-term quick 
quick term for that is called Swiss cheese. So if you Google Swiss cheese model of accident investigation, you can see the components of that and how it walks through not just the employee error, which, you know, I don't like to use error because sometimes it's not an error. It's just the, the conditions created cause the employee to make a decision. So it goes through all these factors that happen before the, the injury or the near miss and ways that you can, can stop that chain of events from happening. So the investigation process in aviation is, is really complex. Um, we have risk assessments in aviation and, and sometimes like, you know, in a civilian world, we have distribution centers that could highly benefit from risk assessments. Risk assessments, you're assessing the conditions for a given day, such as weather or terrain or the flight crew that you're flying with, and you're determining what is the probability of an injury happening and what would be the severity if that injury did happen. So we have very advanced risk assessments in an aviation safety program that, again, is predicting what could go wrong with that risk assessment. And, and I don't see a ton of risk assessments used in these civilian organizations. Um, there are some out there, especially when you're, you're dealing with um, maybe a utility plant. I have seen risk assessments when I've consulted with utility plants. Um, but are they used before every single day or every single change of, change of task that they're going to do? Probably not. And then finally, the last, the last component that I see is an actual safety office management. This is dedicated safety personnel that are in charge and solely responsible for managing the safety program. Um, sometimes in, in civilian organizations, I, I don't see dedicated safety people. I, I see it's an additional duty. It might fall under security. So the security and asset protection team, oh, you also have safety or, or even HR. I've seen human resources. Oh, safety is my side duty. So I see it combined with other departments a lot or I see it as an additional duty of somebody else. But in aviation, you actually have an entire department dedicated to the, the program management and safety. Yeah, that's excellent. Definitely a lot of things going on there and all of those things, you know, build up to, to form that safety culture. You know, it's a couple things I was thinking about as you were, as you were explaining all that is, the, the first thing is when we look at high reliability operations with with all of the things that we work on you know, within within healthcare operations, of course that that goes from the you know the engagement through the hazard analysis, the risk assessment, the hazard control, the communication, the leading and lagging indicators, and the incident analysis. So that's great that that's all built into that because like you said, you know otherwise people would just be waiting until there was a, you know, a catastrophe or, you know, a class A mishap. And then they would, oh, for those that haven't heard that, class A mishap is loss of aircraft, loss of pilot, uh, loss of crew. And so um, following up after that would be obviously um, too late. So it's, it's great that all those things are predictive and, and proactive. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is within healthcare, one of the things that's very interesting, as, as you know, is that when we talk about safety, you know, we have the initial safety of the, the task itself. You know, so we have we have the facility, which, you know, we, um, dry floors, you know, the equipment works, people have the training. Then we have the actual task, which is following the, the operating procedures for whatever we're doing, whether it's, you know, drawing blood or giving a vaccine or, um, or doing a catheter, or, you know, whatever the task is. And then, then the last part of that equation is the, the situational awareness. So we're watching to make sure that 
while we're doing these things. So we have the safe conditions, we have the safe work practices, but then we also have to watch out to make sure that you know the patient's not combative or there's not a, a combative visitor or um, there's no um, no outside exposure to hazardous materials or, or bloodborne pathogens or biological agents or whatnot. And so it seems to me the same kind of thing would happen within aviation where you know you're making sure that the aircraft is safe, you're making sure the pilot is safe and knowledgeable and trained. And then once you get up in the air, especially in your context, you know, where you're talking about combat operations, there's always the potential that that someone will shoot at you. You know, I'm I'm thinking most people's most people's visual reference would be if they're watching, you know, one of the old uh, movies about Vietnam War where um you know the the Huey pilots are going into a hot landing zone and <laughs> taking all kinds of incoming. Um, so when y'all talk about safety analysis, there, do y'all differentiate there between when you say safe flying hours? Do you differentiate between the aircraft and the pilot versus combat action? So I think you're asking, do I differentiate between tactical and non-tactical operations? Yes, ma'am. Is that the question? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, there. Now, yes and no. I mean, we follow the same safety program in the states that we do in Afghanistan and Iraq. So in Afghanistan and Iraq, we have a safety risk assessment that we fill out before we fly. In the states, exact same risk assessment. It's the exact same form. However, there is a section related to combat. Um, the combat section is about did we get an intelligence brief? Do we know what the enemy's doing? Are we familiar with our mission? Um, and then the mission of whatever it is that day, we have a completely separate checklist for that. So with aviation, we're all about checklist. We have a ton of checklists for everything. So when it comes to a specific tactical mission, we have one for route reconnaissance. So if we're just conducting a route reconnaissance and, and looking for stuff on a route, we have a checklist for that and safety is included in that. We have a checklist for um, close air support. So if there's a, a ground or an infantry unit looking for um, aviation support, we're out there to do help them conduct this cordon in search of a building. We have a checklist for that. Um, we have a checklist for what to do if we're receiving combat fire. So if we're being shot at, we have an acronym for that. I honestly can't remember it off the top of my head because it's been 10 years, but the first one was deploy to cover, you know, the first, and we're trained on these checklists. So it becomes second nature. So when I immediately start taking fire, I, I deploy to cover. I, I get out of there and then I circle back around and I assess the situation and figure out where did that fire come from. And then we make an assessment on based, of course, on where the where the friendly forces are, if we're going to return fire or if we're going to set up a different type of engagement or call in additional support. So we have checklists for everything. So, you know, the, the mission dictates which which safety checklist we're going to use. Um, but for the most part, it is the same. It's just in tactical operations. You do have that added component of the enemy. And and again, we have so many different scenarios that could that could happen. But we have checklists for that as well. Yeah, that's awesome. That, that's awesome. It's a the same thing that you know we always reiterate, even even within healthcare operations, is you know it's 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 not enough to just make sure that the facility is safe and the equipment safe and that we have the right training and operating procedures, but we have to make sure that we're accounting for any other variables so that we're able to you know observe, orient, decide, and act in in real time. And that's become very very prevalent in the last year, especially with the high potential for exposures to viruses and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. yeah. 
you know, the, that just shows the the high reliability principles are are alive and well, and it it doesn't it doesn't surprise because those things were created through through forums like aviation and uh, nuclear power generation, space flight, things of that nature. So yeah, that that's great. So you you've talked about so your your aviation career and you've gone into safety and you've been able to work up to your PhD. So as you've been doing this and you've gone into into uh, private industry and and continued to progress as a, as a safety professional. What have you What have you taken with you throughout the years that, that you learned back back as as far back as the Army that has benefited you into the into your current role? So, yeah this this question I, I thought about this one a while and, and how I want to answer this one and and I, I'm a huge proponent of of, um, of of education. Obviously, I went and got a PhD and. I felt like when I got out of the military, that was kind of my biggest fear through my career. So what am I going to do when I get out of the military? Um, how am I going to translate what I've learned in the military to a civilian organization? And I was slightly terrified that I, if I didn't have education in those degrees, what would my life look like? Um, and I got out of the military at 32, so still young enough where I need to you know, land a good job and, and work. I'm not quite old enough to retire, so I did dump a lot of resources into my education, and I, and I feel like also education is very objective, and it can easily close a door for you. So a lot of job descriptions will say bachelor degree required or master's degree preferred. Um, I've never seen any of them say PhD is desired, so I, I don't know if that's going to benefit me or not. However, it does get me in the door a lot. It does get me um, into a lot of interviews, and I often feel if you don't have that degree, because everything is so system-generated and system-oriented, it could automatically just close a door for you. Um, if you have to put no to, do you have a degree? If you have to put no then the system just might kick you out because that is a requirement of the job to have a degree. And if you have to put no, then boom, you don't even get an opportunity to interview. Um, and does a degree get you a job? Absolutely not. I, I don't, I mean, many of us that have degrees, <laughs> we're like, I don't know how I got through this. Do you learn anything? Maybe you might learn stuff doing a degree, but it's getting you in the door. That's what it is. So I, I am a, hu a in huge favor of getting your education because it's just it's that objective thing that you almost have to have. Um, I do find the combination of my aviation background with the PhD in behavioral sciences. I sell that a lot in interviews because most of the time the organization that I'm interviewing with or the consulting firm that, that I happen to be working with at the time they often come to me and say, my people just won't work safe or they just the, the employees just don't pay attention to what they're doing. And if you ever look at accident investigations or the root cause of an injury, it's the employee wasn't paying attention or they tripped over their own foot or they were hurrying. They were they were rushing. It's blaming the employee. So oftentimes these organizations are trying to they blame the employees for having injuries. And they're trying to find ways to make their employees more safe. So I, I can I find that when I start going through all the components of an aviation safety program, some of those spark up to them like, oh, my goodness, we need an internal audit program. We could identify all these things. Or they're like, yes, we really want an incentive program if they want to go that route. So when I start talking through all the aviation safety components, 
they immediately spark up and want that. When I start talking through social and behavioral sciences, that really gets them because I'm talking about human behavior and how to modify human behavior, if you will. But it really is relevant um, and it crosses over so easily. So I, I have found that the combination of those two things is really easy to sell when you're when you're interviewing and in career progression. So if I were to um, you know sell anything with this question, it is definitely get that education because it's an automatic eliminator um, and find a way to sell yourself. So whatever your background is, there's something unique in it that you can use to sell yourself and make yourself unique. Definitely, definitely. That's that's great input. You know, it's interesting that you say that it's it's a common thread uh, among you know all the great leaders that we we speak to here. We we had spoken to Sean Galloway just a couple of days ago, and um, that was his, his one of his takeaways. There was you know don't try to don't try to go out there and emulate you know somebody else. Is you know decide you know who you are and what you do well, and then and then be able to explain that and you know be. What he had said was, you know, quote unquote, be your own best. You know, don't try to be somebody else. That, that's fantastic. Um, it's interesting, too, that you say that because that's very relevant. And I know that our listeners have probably heard that also in their in their organizations or in their in their lives where there's an incident and it'll be the, the proverbial trip, trip over their own feet. Or I was just walking and I fell down or um, the, um, you know wasn't wasn't paying attention that that happens all the time and um it's always being able to see the difference in in terms of those things may happen but the question is what what's also happening at the same time so for example if, if an employee is having if they're having situations where people are just falling down or if they're having these these episodes where they're where they're not not paying attention to their surroundings or whatnot it's it's one thing for that to happen once, but if it becomes a trend, then what's what's not being said there is that that becomes culturally okay for that to happen, and it becomes well if that happens, then we'll just file a report, and that'll be that'll be that. But if people are if people are accustomed to hearing about safety, and they have the safety committee, and they have the hazard analysis, and they know the expectations are to you know maintain safe working environment, safe working conditions safe work practices, situational awareness, and they have those, like you said, they have a positive reinforcement program that works proactively to reinforce safe behavior, safe conditions, and then you have the leading indicators to validate those things in real time, and then you have the lagging indicators to follow up on those things, and then if something happens, there's, there's an, uh, an incident analysis to figure out what happened and why, then the culture starts to shift to where it's, it's not okay to had those types of situations it's okay to report them and to improve on them but it's not just culturally acceptable for things to be unsafe um and so part of that is not so much drawing a hard line and holding someone you know in a in a punitive way holding them punitively accountable but just making it clear what those expectations are and how we expect to achieve safe conditions and safe work practices and then we're able to continually improve from that then it becomes a, a positive transition so yeah, that, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it, you just reminded me of you know a, a follow-on talking point. You're you're describing what's what we term or coin normalizing a deviation. And if you um, look at aviation history, there's a, I think it was the Challenger explosion that um, 
normalized a deviation in the O-rings. So that's how, that's what ultimately caused that explosion was that they were normalizing this deviation. So what you've just described is if a supervisor walks by a hazard and they don't correct it, they've just normalized that, you know, and, and that's very dangerous in aviation because, well, in healthcare as well, if you are normalizing these things, then it just becomes part of the culture. But if you normalize safety, then that additionally becomes part of the culture. So if anyone's interested in studying that, I know that's question five, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but normalizing a deviation is a very interesting topic and, and how to avoid it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those things where if um, we hear that a lot in healthcare, especially around things like disease exposure prevention or um, bloodborne pathogen exposures or bodily fluid exposures, where I've gotten probably in in the last ten years probably over a hundred phone calls, and people will say that, well, this happened. We need to file the report. And I say, okay, well, we need to figure out what the situation is as far as how the exposure happened, whether we have the right preventative measures, whether we have the right training education, whether we're validating these things are happening so we can make sure that we're improving. And they say, oh, no, we're not going to do any of that. It's just the cost of doing business. We're moving on. And they say, well, if you look at it like that, then it absolutely will happen again and again and again. Um, so very, very important. Normalization of deviance is a, is a real thing. That, that's great input. So, with all that, so that, that's um, a lot of a lot of good lessons learned there. A lot of good things to to think about. So, let's say that somebody was asking you now about how they could go from where they're at into a into a safety role. I know you talked about with education and with um, being able to, you know, being able to articulate the uh, assets of each person and all that good stuff. Um, so what, what would you advise somebody to, to go look for as far as um, education, certifications, experience? What types of things do you think are beneficial to, to go into a, into a safety leadership position? So I'll speak just specifically to veterans for a second um, because I, I've talked a lot about how veterans transition and, and selling their, their military skills in the civilian world. Um, and if you are in in the military, you really got to understand the value of your military training. Um, I, I've learned over the years that nothing beats the military. Like just the training is so advanced and it's so complex and civilians want that, you know, they want that advanced training and you really got to learn how to leverage that training that you've had and then sell it in an interview. And also for military, um, you have very, very solid subjective skills that you need to be able to speak to. You know how to, to solve problems. You know how to make decisions. And, and problem solving and decision making are two subjective skills that that employers want. So I think selling those types of skills are really going to benefit you and then learn and really understanding the value of that military training. So definitely those two things for veterans who are, are looking to transition out. Um, regarding safety um, and getting into safety. I, I get asked this a lot. You know, I have a lot of, of you know, frontline supervisors or even managers in our organization that, that want to cross over into safety. Um, but a lot of safety management positions 
require X amount of years of safety experience. You know, how do you get that? How do you build that? And you have to kind of start, you have to start slow and small, you know, start by maybe leading the safety committee and, and taking on additional safety tasks. Um, you could also do some things outside of the norm. You could publish or be a co-author of something. You could, you know, team up with a safety professional that you know and, and offer to co to co-write something with them and get and start to get published. So there's different ways that you can, you know, slowly start getting involved in safety and learning about it. Um, if you're looking to transition over into that field um, and building up the safety resume over time. So I, I definitely think um, now if you go to college and you, <laughs> I started by saying, you know, nobody sits in high school and wants to be a safety professional. However, there, there might be some people that are going to college for, you know, safety, security or, or whatever that, that field might be at that college. Um, then an additional, you know, a part-time job doing safety inspections, I, I find often gets people into the safety field. You know, there's different different auditing companies like, you know, EcoSure or DuPont that have inspectors on site. So starting as an inspector, I think, is the, is the normal route to go. Um, but I always caution inspectors because you, we don't want to be the police, right? Managing a safety program is not about being a police officer showing up writing a ticket and leaving like that's not how to create a predictive safety culture you have to encourage you have to kind of coach people along the way on how to integrate safety into your operations without making them mad and oftentimes when you show up and write tickets and tell them all this stuff is wrong and then leave it just makes them mad so you have to figure out how to transition from being an inspector over to being a, a business leader or a business partner in safety, you have to be able to do that elegantly. Elegantly, we <laughs> I cannot say that word, um, but it, there's a way to do that. And I think um, it, if you can learn that art, then you're going to be sitting really good when it comes to getting those those more advanced safety leadership roles. Um, but I, I think starting slow, starting small, and building some side some side things up will help you create that resume, and then you know, take a leap and, and apply for that job and, and, you know, hopefully you'll get it. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's great input as well. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, I was thinking about, you were talking about the, um, the initial entry, you know, and, and it is difficult, you know, it's kind of the catch 22 where people require experience, but how do you get experience when you have to have experience to get experience? And um, it, it reminds me, you know, when I was when I was young, um, I uh, I remember I saw a, there was a movie that my wife and I, well, she was my, my girlfriend at the time, we were watching this movie, and um, there was a character who was working in um, what they they called it risk management, but in reality he was he was a hostage negotiator for. Um, uh, executives that get kidnapped in in these foreign countries, and I remember I went, "Wow, that is intriguing." I said, "That would be awesome." I said, "But of course, in the movie, they make it clear that in his previous work, he had been in the Special Air Service and the in the British Army, you know." And I told I told my wife, I said, "Wow, that would be awesome." I said, "But I, I don't know if I'll be able to, you know, be in special forces. I don't know that I'm. I don't know if I can do that." So I thought that was funny, but in in reality, it turned out that when I did join the military. Um, I was able to go into emergency management, and so I did. You know, the first couple of years in 
counter chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, high explosive. And then from there, I went into emergency operations center. And then from there, I went into full emergency management. And then that kind of kind of pushed me into safety when I when I finished my commitment to the military. So um, a lot of times people will ask me about that. And I say, well, you know, if, if you want to fast track it, you know, <laughs> just join the military. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, they'll get you the experience, you know. Um, <laughs> It's, it's on you to get the get the certifications and the education, but but they'll certainly put you through the, the AIT and put you in the field, you know. And um, if you choose to stay in the military, you know, after the, the first couple of years, then you can go from something like emergency management where you start in counter seaburn and then you can go into, you know, being the safety NCO. And then from there, you know, that, that puts you right into that same role where I see military safety NCOs at all the conferences every time. Um, but then for the people, you know, if the, if the military is not for them, which is totally legit, you know, it's, it's definitely not for everybody. Then um, like you said, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And that's something we always offer with, with all of our organizations, you know, um, AOHP journal, ASSP health beat. Um, there's always room for publications. So if people want to write or if they want to get involved, they can, heck, people can be on this podcast if they have, you know, something they want to say, um if they have a you know a perspective they want to they want to be involved with voicing um so there's always opportunities with that with advocacy groups and then of course um like you said there's a lot of jobs where people can start to get involved and i do agree that you know we all want to and even people in you know positions like ours we want to be cautious about that to make sure that we're not going into that you know directorial you know punitive Type, type manner where we're writing citations, you know, and policing it out. It's, it's definitely about culture change and positive um, setting, setting a positive culture and then reinforcing that um, and validating the safe practices and the safe conditions. So I, I totally agree. But, um, well, heck, so to kind of, I don't want to take up all your time today. I know you're very busy. Um, so last things last, I know you talked about, you know, learning more about things like normalization and deviance, you know, and high reliability principles and all that good stuff. What what are things would you would you uh, point people towards if they want to learn more about this? So you know, looking at the organization that you're in, um, if you're looking to change the culture or enhance the safety program, you have to start small. I, I found I've, I've gone into organizations. I've got these big ideas, like right, safe, aviation safety is so big, and there's so much. And if you kind of go in full force with all these grand ideas, it's going to get met with resistance. Um, I'm going to share a concept that, you know, a good friend of mine shared with me. Um, it's, you, you hear this cliche, I'm an outside the box thinker, you know, I'm always outside the box. And the reality in civilian organizations is that you have parameters, you have a box that you have to be in. And so when you hear someone say, well, I'm outside the box, well, you might be outside the box, but the budget only goes so far. You have personnel restrictions that can only allow you to do so much. Um, you have geography that, that might limit your capabilities. So you have parameters that create a box for you to operate in. So with aviation safety is way outside the box, right? So I have to start with what is inside my box, right? What are my parameters? What do I have to operate in? Now, that doesn't mean you can't start pushing against the sides of your box. You might start pushing for more headcount or pushing for more budget or, you know, expanding this area where, where you need to expand. And eventually your box will get bigger and then the parameters 
you know, are, are bigger and you can do more. So I, I always encourage that, that those outside the box thinkers to, to tailor it into your box, but try to expand it by increasing um, that safety budget if you can, or increasing personnel. Um, but you have to start small yet impactful. So you pick one thing to start with that, that you know is going to work for your organization. So I'll just give you an example. Um, at an organization I, I worked with, we came up with the idea to do a safety calendar. This thing took off. It, it, it was awesome because the, the organization was so oriented toward work-life balance and family. We had the kids create the calendar. So all the family members their their children, their grandchildren, whatever the case may be, would draw these safety pictures and we would we would vote on who had the best picture and then we would create a 12 month calendar off the pictures that these children submitted. Um, and I think one year we got over 500 submissions from the organization on on the safety calendar and then it's published in every every you know this is a, a national company so every location in the united states received this safety calendar and they hung it up on their bulletin boards and and you know kids from you know employees had drawings that were published in this calendar so it was a huge a huge win it didn't cost a lot of money but yet it was impactful because it, it touched all seven thousand locations in the united states and had a safety message displayed with this beautiful children's artwork. So we started small with something like that. And, and I think if you can find what your organization loves and relate it to the mission of your organization, it's really going to be an impactful thing. But it, you got to find out what's going to be within the budget, within your parameters, yet reach the entire organization. So you do have to get very creative as a safety manager. Um, you know, and, and if you wanted to really study more there's there's tons of safety resources out there you know just looking at, you know if you wanted to start with what i was talking about with accident investigation because so much conversation can be generated from a single accident you know when you have if you are in a distribution center or you, you're driving pit equipment around if you, when you have an accident there's so many factors that could have contributed to the accident so if you wanted to google hvacs Again, that's um, Human Factors Analysis Classification System, or short term, it's called Swiss Cheese. That's an, an excellent model, and if you study that and, and understand how that works, that will allow those frontline supervisors and managers in particular to understand all the causation factors that lead to an injury from organizational influences, such as you know hiring and bonuses and things like that, um, it also will show them supervisors and what supervisors um, go through when it comes to decision making and how their decisions might impact their workers, right? Let's say a supervisor doesn't plan accordingly for their day um, and it causes the employees to rush. You know, that's that's the reason for rushing. Every time I see that listed as a root cause, I'm like, well, why were they rushing? You know, did you plan correctly for the day? Did someone call off? Do you have a backup plan for when someone calls off? Can you borrow from another department? So when you start asking all these questions, it really gets management thinking. So if you were to just study HVACs or Swiss cheese, that would be a, a really good tool that you can use and bring to your organization. Um, another one is the fishbone model. That's another accident investigation model. There's just tons of different models out there that are used. Swiss cheese just happens to be my favorite. Um, of course, I, I have a book that I, I quote quite a bit. It's called The Power of Habit. The Power of Habit um, 
talks about creating new habits in people and getting rid of old habits and triggering your brain to respond to situations in a different way. So I, I talk about that book a lot because I, I really see some qualities in there that, that can help change employee behavior or change human behavior in general and, and get toward normalizing safety in a culture. So those are the things that I would recommend. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And to your point there, those, you know, those factors, things like, the, you know, the dangerous states of mind, the rushing, fatigue, complacency, distractions, those are hugely important. So the more that we are able to uh, proactively address those things and set the expectations around them, then the less likely that it's going to continue to happen. So definitely, those, those are all habits and very um, kind of like driving, you know, very preventable where we talk about um, if, there's an, if there's a driving accident or a driving incident, rather, then um, the first questions, of course, is, you know, was there speeding? Was there distractions? Was there impairments? Because these are all things that are preventable that we are able to to work on. So it, it removes the it removes the um, the chance or the the um, yeah the chance out of it. So definitely great input. Um, well, heck, I'd, like I said, I don't want to take up all your day. I know you're very busy, but uh, is there anything anything you'd like to add before we before we sign off today? I don't think so, Corey. I think we've covered everything. Again, thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity. Um, and I just wish everyone the best. If anyone wants to reach out to me, of course, Corey, you can give them my information. But I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, we sure appreciate Dr. Gresham's time and her great perspectives and information. So as always, if you'd like to get in touch with us with AOHP, please do. We have a lot going on at AOHP with the regions and with the chapters. We have a lot of great webinars. We have podcast episodes with the AOHP Journal. And of course, we have our national conference coming up in September in San Diego. So we hope to hear from you and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.